Welcome to Booz Allen Hamilton's Unstoppable Together podcast, a series of stories that unite us and empower each of us to change the world. I'm Jenny Brooks with Booz Allen Hamilton, and I'm passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Please join me in conversation with a diverse group of thought leaders to explore what makes them and all of us unstoppable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unstoppable Together podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Brooks, and we're kicking off Black History Month, where we're going to explore the rich culture of Southwest Louisiana. I'm excited today to be joined by Corey Porsche, who's going to share with us his experiences growing up Creole. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm coming to you from Louisiana today, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I'm a proud consumer and producer of all of those wonderful parts of our culture that I think make make us special. Tell me a little bit about what those special components of culture are. Sure. You know, it's been really interesting. I've literally traveled all over the world kind of sharing bits and pieces of our culture, whether it be music. I'm a musician, teaching dance, taught dance, Cajun and Zodico dance, literally all over the world. And it's just been great to be a part of that, as well as a part of some of the camps and festivals that we have here at home. And just to witness that people literally from all over the world, all over the United States, will take their vacation time to fly to my home just to learn about us and what we do and participate in this culture that we live every day. I think it's an interesting example of there's many strongholds of culture, I guess, in the United States. I think something that's special about what happened in South Louisiana is for so long, it was very isolated and kind of almost untouched by greater American society that you can still to this day sample a taste of something older with a lineage that's not just older, but a living culture that continues to evolve and that the vast majority of us participate in. And I think that that's special in America. So it's not something that we do in a museum or something that we do once a month. It's a way of life. Tell me a little bit about that way of life growing up. What really stands out to you? And I love that backdrop of sort of this very distinct place in our country that sort of stood on its own. Sure. And I think There's several different things going on in Louisiana, right? So you have this New Orleans area, which is where I was born, with the French Quarter and Jazz Fest and New Orleans Mardi Gras that are very specific and follow some of the same context that I've stated previously, like this isolated culture that's rich and continues to evolve, but is special. And then you have what's going on in Southwest Louisiana, which is more of this Cajun, Creole, rural culture, which is also very distinct and special. So they're not the same. You're going to, it's two hours apart, but you're going to see a slight difference in some of the food ways, some of the music, and some of the ways in which we we dance as well. Where it comes to cooking, and I'm sure shortly we're going to talk about what the word Creole means, which can take up a three-day conference. But in New Orleans, Creole cooking is going to refer more to like a tomato-based style of cooking with all of the beautiful and various influences that make up New Orleans. So French, black Creole, as well as Creoles of color, um, a lot of Haitian influence, using a lot of like local ingredients and things like that. 
And in the rural parts, like in Southwest Louisiana, you're going to see more of a roux-based cooking. So you guys might know what a roux is. In a lot of other styles of cooking, French cooking, they use like a light roux or a blonde roux. We tend to use really dark roux, same same ingredients. We just cook them a lot longer. And you'll see here people take pride and my grandma did it this way and his is not as dark as mine. And really heartfelt comfort food, rice and gravy, a lot of sausage, smoked sausages, various portions of pig that might not be eaten in other parts of the country. Something like chaudin, where we actually take a pig stomach and stuff it with sausage or boudin. Cracklin. Those are some of the, the things. The roux is something that has eluded me. <laughs> I have a very good friend from Nashville. He tried to teach me and I still could not perfect the art. All right. Let's talk about what it means to be Creole. How is Creole defined? Sure. So when I speak to folks about Creole, there's a lot of debate here locally as well amongst academicians and other folks who study us. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I like to refer to Creole from a historical context. I think the word can only be understand at a given time in history. So, for instance, in the early days of New Orleans, Creole basically referred to anything that was born in the New World. So you had Caucasian people of the upper echelon, you know, white French folks and if they came to New Orleans, their children would be referred to as Creole. And their way of life, like in those generations after, because they were kind of once removed from France, they were new, they had new influences, they were referred to as Creole. I feel like that particular term no longer has much relevance as newer generations of Caucasian folks, they have kind of become more Americanized, doesn't really refer to anything maybe except for lineage or speaking to your your ancestors coming from France. But in modern day society in New Orleans, I don't think that it means very much. When I refer to myself as Creole, I'm referring to the fact that I come from 200 years of mixed race people. So what happened in Louisiana is different than what happened in, say, Mississippi or Alabama or Texas. We were under French law for a very long time, and to this day, we have civil code, which is unlike any other legal proceedings in the rest of the country because of the French influence in Louisiana. And what this allowed was when a slave was given their freedom, they could retain that freedom. You know, in Mississippi, they'd probably – well, we know. They would take those papers and rip them up and bring you back. In Louisiana, you could actually go to court with your papers, and that would stand. These Frenchmen like fell in love with some of their slaves, and they would have children. And what we see in the historical record is that oftentimes – I don't want to over-romanticize it. They were slaves. They were owned by these people. So some of the stories are nice and pretty, but the reality is they were slaves. But at the same time, what we see in the historical records is that oftentimes – they would have like a mistress that was one of their slaves. They would have a child, which would be referred to as a mulatto. And what we'd see is that they would raise that child in the house. They would educate them. Oftentimes, they would be given a name that would reference one of their father's ancestors. And if we don't see that, we see it in the next generation. A lot of these children naming their child after their grandfather. And upon their death, 
we see that they would often leave the freedom to the mother and the child, as well as a parcel of land, right? And this happened rampantly across Louisiana. So now you have half black, half white child who speaks French, who has some wealth, who is educated. What is he to do, right? Well, right down the river, that plantation owner did the same thing. So there's this little mulatto girl there, and those two people get together, put their land together, and they start to amass this second tier of what we had a three-tier system where you had like white plantation landowners, and then you had these, what we call les gens de couleur libre, which was free people of color who also owned land and property. And then you had kind of everybody else, Acadians and all these other folks who kind of made up that third tier. So this was the case up until about the Civil War. And then uh, after the Civil War, the, the laws changed in Louisiana. And it became if you had one thirty second of black blood in you that you were black. So all of a sudden, everything changed. And now you, you have to choose. You either have to drink out of this water fountain or this water fountain. You either have to go to this school or you have to go to this school. So I think that the Creole people at that time became even more insular because they didn't know where they fit. They weren't white and they weren't black. So if you look at all of my ancestors, all the way up to my parents' age, my dad is one of nine children. All of my aunts and uncles married other Creoles, right? And they, because of the times, they all went to black schools and they got picked on and they got spit on and they got their hair pulled because they didn't look like everyone else. But yet they couldn't necessarily go into the restaurant like the white folks were. They, too, had to order from the window. So it's very confusing, kind of traumatic. So I think they became even more insular and even more, I don't know if it was pride or shame that brought them closer together. But, you know, there were Creole dances where it was just Creole folks that, that came together and, and went to these dances and met their spouses and things of that nature. So uh, it's been a very interesting history. It certainly is. You've used the term mulatto throughout conversation today, but that's obviously a term that's no longer accepted in today's community. Is that right? How we should be thinking about the term mulatto today? Well, we, should, we shouldn't be. I started off today saying when I discuss these things, I discuss them in their historical context. Every time I've used the word mulatto today, I was referring to census data from the turn of the century yes. or earlier. Okay. Yeah, it's horrible. Mulatto was used to discuss property. It was to say like, you know, th this particular piece of property that you could purchase could, could serve you in the house because they look different than these other folks. It's a horrible term. So yeah, that's not something that I would use in a modern context, I was strictly referring to, to the historical context. Well said. You mentioned at some point Creole dances, Creole-only dances. Can you talk a little bit about dance relative sure. to the Creole culture? Sure. So there's in southwest Louisiana, in Cajun country, Acadiana, where there's this huge influence of uh, Acadians, which were like folks from French-speaking people from Nova Scotia, Canada, who were kicked out. They were kicked out by the British and spread all over the world, and a lot of them reconvened in Louisiana. So there's a huge influence of French-speaking 
people in southwest Louisiana who mixed with sharecroppers and, and other folks who became kind of the dominant culture. And so you also have Légion de Couleur Libre, like the Creoles of Color, and you also have what we call Black Creoles, which are Black people, former slaves, you know, and uh, descendants of slaves, but who were assimilated into this culture. So they're all, they're French-speaking, they play accordions, they cook gumbos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what that area produced are two dances. One of them is kind of like Cajun dancing, which is two-stepping, waltzing, jitterbugging. And on the other side is what we call, refer to as Zadiko. And uh, I'm really interested in this history of this stuff. And I've looked at videos as old, as far back as I could go. And what you'll see is like the the Creoles are are kind of doing the same dances. They're waltzing and they're two-stepping. They're just doing it with a lot more rhythm and a little bit more hip action and a little bit more swinging out. And over time, that has evolved into what we call today Zodico dancing, which what it, I don't know how to describe it verbally, something that you have to see. But uh, it's something that people from all over pay lots of money to come and take their vacations to enjoy and experience and learn as well as I've been to places in New York and Denmark and Washington State and Vermont where, you know, we will go up there to teach folks. You teach Zydeco and Cajun dance. How have they changed and evolved over your lifetime? It's kind of unreal that I actually have an answer for that since I'm so young. Naturally. (laughs) (laughs) But to see how much that this has changed. So when I first started getting interested in dancing and, and, and the music. It was always around, but I, didn't, I wasn't really kind of chinky-chink in the background. But when I got interested in it in college, at that time, you would go to Cajun places and do Cajun dancing, which were 99% white Cajun people. And then you could go to Zodico dances out in the country, which were there might be four white people there who came in to witness this. Hmm. And and in a Zodico dance, you would not, there's certain things about Zodico and Cajun that are different. So you would not twirl your partner around in a circle. Like that's not a Zodico dance, right? So you would not do that. It almost felt like if you did that, the the band would stop and everyone would like look at you funny, right? I remember being at Randall's, a restaurant uh, that has a dance floor and had live music every evening with a friend of mine. And she's like, hey, let's let's Zodico to this song. And I remember being horrified, like, have you lost your mind? If we moved our (laughs) hips in that way in this place, the music would stop and everybody would look at us like we're crazy. Now, this is as late as the mid-90s, Jenny. The mid-90s. Now... I'd have to say that since, and a lot of things have happened that we could talk about legally and publicly that have kind of shaken things up and asked questions about this, about the underlying racism that exists in the South still, right? A lot of musicians spoke out to this and pushed the envelope because it's just ridiculous, right? And so what you see nowadays, and I started seeing it like in the mid-2000s, you would see more white people going to Zodico dances you would see more Creole and Black Creoles going to Cajun dances and festivals. And then what you see is you see Blacks and Whites dancing together. 
And what you also see is this cross-pollination of dance styles, which has evolved, whereas today, if you were to come to Lafayette and go to Buck and Johnny's on a Saturday to a Zotico show, it's going to be 50-50. Everybody's dancing with everybody, and they're doing a dance that's slightly different than what it was when it was both in its purest form. And to me, it's just like this beautiful representation of like a cross-pollination of, of the people and the dances, which is because part of what keeps us going is that our culture doesn't exist on a, on a museum shelf. It's alive and it's changing constantly. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that I've been able to witness that in my own lifetime. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about Mardi Gras as celebrated across the country. You know, we obviously see it celebrated in many cities across the United States What's your take on the sort of fascination and celebration of Mardi Gras? Is it appropriate? Is it representative? Is it both? Is it neither? So this is an interesting question. And I think it goes back to, you know, I've had to ask myself these questions when I've gone to these camps, because like you're basically being paid to go and be yourself and do what you do on a Friday night in front of others and teach other people about this. I think it's flattering. I think it's cool that other people are interested in the way that we live. You know, something else that's interesting is because our culture is living, it's something that we do. It's something that we live. It's not something that's getting dusty on the shelf in a museum. We are very proud of this. So even here locally, you know, there's jokes about if you live north of I-10, Interstate 10, or south of Interstate 10, there's like north of Interstate 10, like they don't really know what they're doing up there and they can't cook. And then if you get two hours north, then that's like might as well be another state, right? So we're so proud. We kind of like make fun of folks even in our state. If you want to see on Facebook when someone posts a video about making a gumbo, everyone's going to come in and comment. So I guess my point is, is no one gets offended. We're so certain and sure about who we are and what we do, that we'll share it with you, we'll show it to you, we'll teach you, and if you try to make money off of it or do it, we'll laugh and send it to our friends and family, and we'll all have a good laugh if it's inappropriate or or not done well. As we start to celebrate Black History Month, where do you see the Creole culture represented or influencing? Part of my answer is almost that we need a Creole history, we, I see a washing away of our culture. So like this, this culture that's been preserved, live, but that hurts my heart a little bit that like, who knows if my grandchildren, I I know my grandchildren will know, but who knows about all the other grandchildren. If you walk around Louisiana, you will see other people like me, Creole folks. So the other part of that question is that I also think that in French, we call it a métissage. This mixing of people that happened in Louisiana is a part of the greater African-American story. And so I think some of the things that we're doing, like me being part of this podcast, me being a part of this African-American Network event where I'm going to be sharing some of this, I would like to see more of those things so that we could tell our story as well and be a a part so that people can, can know that we exist and uh, engage and embrace this part of that history as well. Corey, this has been just such a fascinating conversation listening to you. And I could listen to you speak French all afternoon, although I wouldn't have a clue what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think I'll have to make a trip to Louisiana. At the end of every podcast, we give our guests some free space to share their final thoughts. What would you like to leave with our audience today? I think the first thing, Jenny, is just that this is an extremely complicated and fascinating subject that we're discussing here. Literally, there are academic conferences about this. PhD dissertations have been written. Debates continue to go on. I hope that we have given our listeners in this very short time a taste of something that could at least, hopefully they're not forming overt opinions based on this very small sample of information, but hopefully it will spark something that may have someone like do a little bit more research and look a little further. It feels a little strange to be sharing something so sacred with such a large group. But uh, so I hope it's treated as such. And I hope that it uh, results in more questions than, than opinion. Certainly. Thank you, Corey. We're so grateful for you having the courage to share with us and leave a little bit of your soul and your family's heart behind with us today. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jenny. Thanks for listening. Visit careers.boozallen.com to learn how you can be unstoppable with Booz Allen. Be the future. Work with us. The world can't wait.